On December 8, 1941, Japanese soldiers burst through the doors of the Peking Union Medical College. Anthropologist Wen Chung-Pei was waiting for them. He had feared this would happen since 1937. Though the college had been left untouched, even after the Japanese army had captured Beijing, it was only a matter of time before American-owned institutions fell to the occupation. The Japanese troops went straight for the research lab's safe. Their priority was to secure a collection of fossils. The bones, known as the Peking Man, were the most valuable items in PUMC. When they broke the safe open, they found only a handful of casts made from the fossils. The bones themselves were missing. Pei breathed a sigh of relief, for he knew they wouldn't find what they were looking for. The Peking Man collection was already on its way to the American Museum of Natural History, where it would be safe from the war. The fossils, however, would never arrive in America. Where they actually ended up, well, to this day, no one knows for sure. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we'll be looking into the disappearance of the Peking Man, a priceless collection of fossilized bones that were lost during the Second World War. Belonging to the Homo erectus species of early human, these bones were crucial to advancing the scientific understanding of our own evolutionary history. And for over 80 years, the disappearance of these fossils has vexed the scientific community. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode... The best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In the early 1920s, a collection of international geologists made an incredible discovery. In a system of caves near Zhou Kodian, southwest of Beijing, they unearthed scores of early human bones, which they called Peking Man, after the European name for Beijing. Despite the singular name, the bones do not belong to one individual. Rather, the title refers to a collection of six skulls, 14 cranial fragments, six facial fragments, 15 jawbones, 157 teeth, one collarbone, three upper arms, one wrist, and one shin bone. It is believed that these bones came from as many as 40 different individuals. 
At the time of its discovery, this was the largest collection of early hominid bones ever unearthed at one site, and the first evidence of early man to be discovered in China. This wealth of fossils showed that early man could use tools, hunt large mammals, and harness fire. It was a massive leap in understanding human evolution, both culturally and physiologically. Researchers originally maintained that they were between 200,000 and 300,000 years old. New research has led paleontologists to believe that the bones were far older, between 400,000 and 700,000 years old. However, these are only estimates, as all the fossils unearthed between 1928 and 1941 were lost in the early days of World War II. The last man to study the bones, Professor Franz Weidenreich, attempted to persuade the U.S. government to fund a search for them after the war, but he was unsuccessful. There are a multitude of theories about what happened to this historic collection, all of them sharing a number of key factors. The first theory is that the marine ship carrying the bones from China to America was sunk by Japanese submarines, and the bones now lie at the bottom of the ocean, waiting to be rediscovered. The second theory is that the bones were captured by the Japanese and hidden away to prevent China from laying claim to one of the most important scientific finds of all time. A third, more recent theory holds that the bones were taken by a private individual, perhaps a Marine or soldier serving in China during World War II, and are hidden away somewhere in Taiwan or even the United States. By the end of the 1800s, the study of human evolution was still in its infancy. Some scattered evidence of hunter-gatherer tribes had been discovered, but remains of ancient humans were scant. During an 1891 exploration to Indonesia, Dutch paleoanthropologist Eugène Dubois discovered what would become known as the Java Man, an incomplete collection of human-looking bones, including a tooth, a skullcap, and a thigh bone. Dubois declared this find to be the missing link between apes and man. This contention aroused much debate in the scientific community. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species was around 40 years old at the time, but the idea that man had evolved from an ape was still a hotly debated theory. The finds sparked a renewed interest in discovering tangible evidence of early man to confirm or debunk Darwin's compelling theory. Swedish geologist Johan Gonar Andersson was likely aware of the Java man when he first traveled to China in 1914, but that was not his original purpose for being there. Andersson had been brought to Beijing to work as a technical advisor for the Chinese government. They needed an expert to advise them on oil and coal mining operations. A driven and energetic man, Andersson helped train the first generation of Chinese geologists during his first few years in Beijing. However, by 1917, his attention was diverted by the opportunities that existed in the surrounding area. These opportunities were not just geological in nature. He had heard stories that led him to believe that there was a wealth of fossils in the earth around Beijing waiting to be discovered. 
At the time, it was common knowledge among paleontologists that one of the best places to find petrified fossils were in local drugstores. Many nearby apothecaries would sell these fossils as dragon bones to be ground up and used as homeopathic remedies. It was while visiting one of these drugstores that Andershan found a petrified human tooth. Using the tooth as evidence, Andershan set out to persuade the Chinese Geological Survey to trace the origin of these dragon bones for archaeological purposes. Wherever the locals got these bones could be an excellent opportunity for archaeology. On March 22, 1918, he was led to a place in Jokodian called Chickenbone Hill, a clay pillar rising from an old limestone mine. This pillar contained a multitude of undiscovered bird fossils, which were interesting but far from the revelatory find Andershan had hoped for. He would make repeat trips to Jokodian until, in 1921, a local directed him to Dragonbone Hill, a nearby mound said to contain an even greater wealth of these dragon bones. While exploring the network of caves in this hill, something caught Andershan's eye that gave him a surge of excitement. He had noticed some fragments of white quartz in the cave, a mineral not native to this part of China. This quartz could not have formed recently. It had to be remnants of prehistoric geological activity. Andershan realized the tunnels they were exploring were far older than the locals had assumed. According to the story, he then turned to his companions and exclaimed, Here is a primitive man. Now all we have to do is find him. His assistant, Austrian geologist Otto Zhidansky, set to work excavating the site. It was during the summer of 1921 that they would uncover their first monumental clue, a molar and a premolar. The molar was initially thought to be an ape tooth, but the premolar confirmed what Andershan had hoped for. These teeth belonged to an early hominid. Andershan sent teams to Jokodian every summer over the next five years while preparing to reveal his discovery to the world. On October 22, 1926, Andershan presented his findings, as well as the two teeth, to the Crown Prince and Princess of Sweden in Uppsala. His announcement caused quite a stir. Reactions in his field were mixed. Some shared his optimism that the discovery of a full early man skeleton was just around the corner. Others, such as the famous evolutionary theorist, Pierre Teilhard de Chardon cautioned him against letting confirmation bias color his investigation. At the end of the year, Andershan turned the teeth over to Professor Davidson Black of the Peking Union Medical College. After studying them for a number of months, Black confirmed Andershan's assertion that these were indeed hominid teeth. In 1927, he declared this early hominid to be a genus of man never before seen, which he called Sinanthropus pekinensis. While he was still unsure of the era the teeth originated from, he wrote enthusiastically of the find, quote, The actual presence of early man in Eastern Asia is therefore now no longer a matter of conjecture. Black's Peking Union Medical College and representatives of the Chinese Geological Survey were in agreement. 
a full excavation of Jokodian was imperative. Black sought out and successfully received funding for the project through the Rockefeller Foundation, which had established PUMC as well as the Chinese Medical Board. While Black was nominally in charge of the excavation, fieldwork fell on the shoulders of a Swede named Dr. Birier Bolin. Bolin visited the caves multiple times over the next couple of years with a pair of Chinese assistants, Wen Chung Pei and C.C. Young. In December of 1929, Black received a telegram from Zhou Kodian. It announced that Wen Chung Pei had made the most monumental discovery of the whole project thus far. Pei had discovered an almost completely intact skull embedded within the rock. The skull provided the most complete piece of the puzzle. They now knew what the facial structure of the Sinanthropus looked like. By this point, the scientific community had started to refer to the bones as the Peking Man. Unlike the partial skull cap and shin bone of the Java Man, the Peking Man was firmly identifiable as an early human. The detractors who insisted the Java Man was simply deformed bones of an ape would not be able to make the same argument with the Peking Man. As tensions between China and Japan rose through the late 1920s and into the 30s, the excavation continued, unearthing bone after bone. Unfortunately, Davidson Black would not see the project completed, as he died of a heart condition in 1934. Some speculated that his close work with the bones themselves was directly responsible for his early death. When a representative of the American Museum of Natural History, Harry L. Shapiro, visited him in 1931, he noted that Black was utterly engaged in studying the fossils, applying a dental drill to remove bits of rock and mineral deposits that clung to the bones. This created a fine dust in the air around him as he worked. Shapiro asked if Black usually wore a mask to protect his lungs. Black said he did not. Shapiro later conjectured that this dust may have contributed to Black's early death. In a eulogy for Black, colleague Dr. V.K. Ting mentioned how Black's commitment to science was an all-consuming priority in his life, overshadowing even his opinions of China as a nation. Dr. Ting said, in politics, Black was a conservative, but in his dealings with his Chinese colleagues, he forgot altogether about their nationality or race because he realized that science was above such artificial and accidental things. Though Black may have put his faith in science over any political or national allegiance, the same would not be true of the empire just across the sea from his university. Only a few short years after Black's death, his life's work would fall victim to a world war. When we return, the researchers in Beijing try in vain to save the Peking man from getting lost to a country under siege. Now, back to the story. The Peking man bones discovered by Yoan Gonar Andersson and studied by Professor Davidson Black were among the greatest scientific finds in human history. Between 1921 and 1937, hundreds of fossilized bone fragments were unearthed in the site near Beijing. 
After the death of Professor Davidson Black in 1934, the Rockefeller Institute appointed German professor Franz Weidenreich to the Peking Union Medical College as Black's replacement. Weidenreich leaped at the opportunity. The chance to study the Peking man was monumental, and as a German Jew, he was glad for the excuse to leave his home country where Nazism was on the rise. Professor Weidenreich, like many others, worried that Hitler was going to start a war in Western Europe. As it turns out, Weidenreich only moved closer to a war zone. Many believe the Second World War began with the invasion of Poland by German forces on September 1st, 1939. However, the Sino-Japanese War began in the East almost two years earlier. In early July 1937, Japanese forces opened fire on Chinese troops on Marco Polo Bridge, a key access route to the city of Beijing. The invasion had begun. By August, Beijing had been captured by Japanese forces. The dig site at Joko Dian was abandoned. As Japan installed a puppet government and secured a foothold in China, researchers involved with the Peking Man Project scrambled to protect their work. The remaining bones were moved to the Peking Union Medical College for safekeeping. As an institute founded and supported by the American Rockefeller Institution, the PUMC was relatively unaffected by the Japanese invasion. When the Imperial Army took over Beijing, they left all foreign sites, including the American Embassy and the PUMC, untouched. Despite this, Weidenreich knew the bones could not stay in the midst of a city in turmoil. They would need to be moved sooner rather than later. At the time, these fossils were the only tangible evidence of this period in human evolution. If they were lost, the ability to study ancient man would be dramatically set back. At some point between 1937 and 1941, casts were made of the Peking man bones so professors could study the fossils without damaging the originals unnecessarily. These copies also provided a form of insurance. If the bones were taken by the Japanese, some aspects of the research could continue. Dr. Weidenreich eventually made plans to travel to America in the summer of 1941 to escape the chaos. Before that, though, he had a number of serious discussions with his fellows about what should become of the Peking Man bones. The university had a handful of options. They could ship the bones to southern China, which was relatively unaffected by the violence, hide the bones in a secure vault somewhere in Beijing, or ship them to America. According to Weidenreich's account, he attempted to persuade U.S. Ambassador Nelson T. Johnson to load the bones into official U.S. cargo so they could avoid the red tape of customs. He was unsuccessful. Since the U.S. was still a neutral party in the war, it's highly possible they did not see any current threat to the bone's safety, so Weidenreich's fear for this artifact would seem more like paranoia than legitimate concern. At this point, Weidenreich even considered carrying the bones in his own personal baggage when flying to the U.S. He quickly discounted the idea. In a letter dated July 11, 1941, he said we arrived at the conclusion that it involved too great a risk to take the originals as part of my baggage. Considering all the pros and cons, 
we decided, at least for the moment, it would be wise to leave the originals where they are now, that is, in the safe of the Cenozoic Research Laboratory in the building of the Department of Anatomy at the PUMC. Weidenreich left that July, carrying with him casts, photographs, and drawings of the fossils to aid in his continuing studies. Less than a month after Weidenreich's departure in August of 1941, the director of the Institute of Geological Survey, Wong Wenhao, wrote to Ambassador Johnson, asking him to arrange for the bones to follow Weidenreich to America. Unlike Weidenreich, Wang Wenhao was successful in persuading Johnson to transport the fossils. The agreement they settled upon was that the bones would go to the American Museum of Natural History in New York until hostilities between China and Japan had subsided. Johnson arranged for the bones to be loaded onto a marine vessel and taken out of China. In November of 1941, Claire Tejdin, Weidenreich's former assistant, loaded all the bones into a pair of crates, packing them carefully with straw. As far as we know, Tejden was the last person to ever lay eyes on the Peking man bones. As soon as she was done packing them away, the crates were turned over to the U.S. Marines stationed in Beijing. They were to be shipped out of the country within a month. The date they set for the departure? December 8, 1941. If they had left China even a day earlier, perhaps the Peking man would not have been lost. On the morning of December 7th, Japanese aircraft attacked the Pearl Harbor Air Force Base in Hawaii. This attack was a firm declaration of war against the then-neutral United States and was the catalyst that pushed America into World War II. In Japanese-occupied China, all United States facilities were seized. Wen Chung Pei, the man who had unearthed the first Peking man skull, was there when soldiers burst into the PUMC on December 8th. They opened the safe in the Cenozoic Research Laboratory and only found the molds the researchers had made. None of the originals were there. Pei's account does not mention what the Imperial Japanese military wanted with some 500,000-year-old bones, but he claims that the entire staff was questioned thoroughly as to their whereabouts during the following weeks. Pei himself was interrogated and later bribed for information, but he told the Japanese interrogators nothing. They accused him of being a spy and confined him to Beijing. And this is where the location of the Peking man bones becomes a matter of speculation. According to Pei, the Japanese had a significant interest in securing these fossils, so one of the persistent theories is that the Japanese military eventually acquired them and kept it a secret. There are conflicting reports about where the Peking Man crates were headed once they left the college. One popular story is that they were bound for the port city of Qinwangdao, where it would wait for the SS President Harrison to arrive from Manila. From there, the crates would sail to America. But the Harrison never arrived. In between Manila and Qinwangdao, it was attacked by the Nagasaki Maru, a Japanese warship. Realizing they would not be able to escape capture and not wanting his ship taken in one piece, 
the captain deliberately ran it aground in the mouth of the Yangtze River. The two crates in this story remained in a warehouse in Qingwangdao until it was raided by Japanese soldiers shortly afterward. A conflicting story holds that the two boxes full of bones were assigned to the last group of Marines making their way out of Beijing. This particular group was on a train to Tianjin when their journey was halted by Japanese soldiers. The Japanese ransacked all the luggage the Marines brought with them, and the bones were presumably destroyed or captured. As the war dragged on, neither China nor American governments considered finding the bones a priority. When the war ended in 1945, Professor Weidenreich made several efforts to recover the bones, writing to Washington repeatedly in both 1947 and 1948, insisting the American government open an investigation. His pleas went unanswered, and he died on July 11, 1948, at the age of 75. With the lack of any new evidence, the bones were presumed lost for good. But then, almost 23 years later, in April of 1971, Harry L. Shapiro, chairman of the Department of Anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History, received a phone call that piqued his interest. It was from the office of Dr. William Foley, a physician who had been a medical officer in the Marines during the war. Foley claimed that, while stationed in Tianjin in the latter half of 1941, he had been asked to transport a pair of footlockers in his personal luggage from out of Beijing. Along with his assistant, Herman Davis, he was directed to board the President Harrison on December 8th. But they never made it on the ship. On the morning of December 7th, the soldiers awoke to find their camp surrounded by Japanese soldiers. All the Marines on the base were rounded up, and they were only permitted to carry one bag of personal belongings to their new lodgings. The rest would be shipped. As the medical officer, Foley was treated with a higher degree of respect and permitted to stay in the Marine barracks with semi-diplomatic status for about a week. Fearing that he faced internment, Foley reached out to some Chinese friends of his and asked them if they could hide the crates for him. There's a slight discrepancy here between the story Foley told and the one told by Claire Tejdin, who had packed the crates. Tejdin claimed there were only two footlockers, but Foley listed four places that he distributed the crates to, including the Pasteur Institute, the Swedish warehouse in Tianjin, and two Chinese friends. He also claimed that he never opened the crates. Either way, after his week of relative freedom, Foley was imprisoned for four years, from 1941 to 1945. During this time, he never received word from any of the individuals he distributed the fossils to. At the end of the war, he was released back to America. By his own admission, he did not even think about what became of the crates until the 1970s when preparing his memoirs. His excuse was that, as a junior officer, he relied on senior officers to follow up on the search. The New York Times piece detailing Foley's story mentions that Foley had the names and addresses for all the men he gave the fossils to, but that he feared that any public search for the bones would result in political reprisals from China. 
He did not go into any further detail about what he meant by that. Perhaps he believed that if they were in China, the Chinese would want to lay claim to them as part of their own cultural heritage. Or they would want to adhere to the original agreement made with the Rockefeller Institute that all bones unearthed in China would stay in China. Foley's story gives us the strongest possible leads on what happened to the Peking man bones during the war, since his account was largely verified by Davis, who, as the pharmacist's mate, rarely left his side. But just as soon as the public became aware of Foley's role in the story, the trail grew cold. As far as we know, as of 2019, no one in China has come forth having been given the bones in late 1941. However, the story does not end here. Within a year of Foley's story going public, another man would launch a thorough investigation into the location of the bones, leading to another flurry of theories. When we return, a prominent U.S. businessman makes the most famous and controversial attempt at recovering the Peking man. Now back to the story. By 1971, the Peking Man fossils had been missing for 30 years. Dr. William Foley had spoken to the New York Times about his supposed handling of the bones on behalf of the U.S. Marine Corps. But since then, no new information had come to light. Until, that is, American businessman Christopher Janis got involved. In 1971, Christopher G. Janus was a 60-year-old stockbroker in Chicago and founding member of the Greek Heritage Foundation, an institution created with the express purpose of arranging cultural trips abroad for its members. Janus had seen a golden opportunity when President Nixon announced his plan to visit China on July 15, 1971. If the famously closed borders of China were about to open... Maybe Janus could arrange a visit to China for his foundation. Janus was nothing if not an enterprising man. In May of 1972, he managed to secure one of the first travel visas China had issued to an American citizen and made an exploratory trip to China himself. Janus traveled throughout China and while there heard the story of a new museum being constructed in Zhou Kodian. Curious, he stopped by to find that the museum was entirely dedicated to the Peking Man site. According to Janus, this was when he met with the director of the museum, Hu Qingqi. In this meeting, he found out about the missing fossils, and Hu requested Janus's help in recovering the Peking Man. In his book, Janus claimed he was thoroughly confused by this, but could not deny the sincerity in the man's voice. He agreed to try to help return the bones to China. After this meeting, Janus claimed his guides and even the Chinese officials they interacted with treated him differently. In his own words, he had been singled out as the man who would help China recover these missing artifacts. Though Janus had no idea how, the rumor spread like wildfire— by the time he landed in Hong Kong on June 16, 1972, Janice found himself mobbed by local reporters. Pressed by the throng of reporters, Janice began his search the only way he knew how, by offering a reward. 
He said the Greek Heritage Foundation would give $5,000 to anyone who could offer information regarding the Peking man fossils. Almost immediately, his office in Chicago was swarmed with letters. By July 26th, 10 days later, he had received over 300 letters, telegrams, and phone calls from people claiming they had information. Most of these offers were transparent attempts to get the $5,000 reward, and many were just people making practical jokes. Janice was almost immediately disheartened. Janice's investigation was not off to a great start. If he thought the only obstacle standing in the way of finding the Peking man fossils after 30 uneventful years was a cash reward, he was quickly realizing just how naive this reward offer had been. But among the deluge of useless messages, a single phone call stood out. Janice knew something was different about this phone call the moment he received it. Whoever was calling had not reached out to his office in Chicago like every other person had. Instead, this call came at the Harvard Club, an address Janice regularly stayed at while in New York. When Janice answered it, he heard the voice of a woman on the other end. The woman spoke haltingly and identified herself as the widow of a Marine. She said she might have something that Janice would want to see. When pressed by Janice, she revealed that her husband had left a box of fossils with her that he told her were of great value. According to her, men had been killed over these fossils. She did not mention the reward, and Janice claimed she seemed unsure of what she wanted to do with this box of bones. He attempted to persuade her to meet up with him. With some reticence, she agreed to meet him in a public place and suggested they meet at the observation deck of the Empire State Building. They agreed to meet at 12.30 that same day. Janice arrived at the observation deck at the agreed-upon time. He wandered there for around 10 minutes before he was approached by a slender woman with black hair. He noticed that she wore a heavy overcoat, far too warm for midday in June. She still did not provide a name, but she did give him a photograph. The picture, in black and white, showed a cluttered handful of bones lying in an open crate. To Janice's untrained eyes, this looked promising. He exclaimed in delight and told the mysterious woman that they should have the bones verified before they moved any further. The woman hesitated. She insisted that her husband would not have lied about this sort of thing. Janice assured her that he did not mean to insult her husband's memory, just that they needed to be sure the bones were the correct ones. He said if this were the case, she had earned the reward. The woman responded that she wasn't thinking of Janice's $5,000 reward. If this truly was an effort supported by the Chinese government, they could afford to pay her a half a million dollars for these bones. Janice, not wanting to alienate this woman who was clearly on edge, told her that they could gather the funds, but it would all depend on making sure the bones were authentic. Suddenly, the woman's eyes darted to a different part of the observation deck. Janice followed her gaze, where he saw a tourist taking photos in their general direction. 
Assuming the tourist was an accomplice of some kind, the woman panicked, snatching the photograph from Janice and fled the observation deck. Janice was so shocked, it took him a moment to pursue. By the time he got to the elevator, he was too late. The woman had left him. Not wanting to lose his one good lead, Janice put an ad in the New York Times requesting the woman call him back. This ad ran on August 4th, 1972. But as he waited for her response, he received yet another lead. This time, Janice was called at his home in Winnetka, Illinois. The caller introduced himself as Andrew Z, and he claimed to know where the fossils were. He promptly arranged a meeting. When Janice met Andrew Z, Z almost immediately started berating Janice for his methods, saying that the publicity he sought would only harm his attempts to find the missing fossils. He claimed they should wait a few years and then begin their search once the public had forgotten. Janice was undeterred, insisting that they find the fossils as soon as possible. When pressed, Z finally revealed what he knew. The fossils, he said, were in Taiwan with a close friend of his. And then, after revealing this information, he left. Janice scrambled to remain in contact with these two leads over the next couple of months. His ad in the Times was successful, and the mysterious woman did reach out again through her lawyer. The lawyer claimed she was afraid of government reprisals for her holding on to the bones for too long, which is why she had fled their meeting so suddenly. The woman still refused to show Janice the bones. After some encouragement, she sent copies of her picture of the bones to him, and he sent them to the American Museum of Natural History to see if they could authenticate them. The results were uninspiring. The picture, which Janice includes in his book, is cluttered and somewhat out of focus and contains a number of bones that were not in the Peking Man collection. The professors claimed some of the skulls might match up with the Peking Man fossils, but it could just as easily be just a box of random bones her husband had brought back from the war. Andrew Z, on the other hand, grew increasingly hostile to Janice over the course of the investigation. He claimed the publicity is what kept any Chinese with information, as well as his Taiwanese friends, from coming forward. Over the following three years, Janice attempted to follow up these leads, reaching out to Taiwanese government sources, as well as those in Hong Kong and China. Finally, in 1975, he felt his search had reached a dead end. Despite failing to make good on his promise to the Chinese, Janice published his story in a book entitled The Search for Peking Man. In yet another plea for publicity, the back cover of the book boasts soon to be a major motion picture. There never was a motion picture. On February 25, 1981, Christopher G. Janice was indicted on 37 counts of fraud. He was accused of defrauding investors of over $600,000 for a movie about his search. In the end, Janice pled guilty to two counts. He claimed that the fraud was unintentional and that he had merely signed the wrong paperwork. This development casts severe doubt over his entire chapter in the story. While Janice includes photographs and some documented evidence of his search, how much of his story was exaggerated in order to make his search more exciting? 
it's impossible to verify many of the claims he makes in his book, meaning that the entire saga may simply be fiction based on a single trip to China. After the fiasco surrounding Janice's book, public interest in the Peking man dropped sharply. But in 2010, the bones entered the public discourse once again. In April of 2010, paleoanthropologist Lee Berger of the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa received an email from the son of former U.S. Marine Richard Bowen. The email claimed that Bowen was stationed in Qinhuangdao in 1947 during China's Nationalist Communist Civil War. Bowen's unit dug many foxholes in Qinhuangdao while it was under siege, and one night they happened to unearth a strange box. Bowen claimed that the box was full of bones. The Marines were so spooked, they filled that hole in and dug another a little ways away for their shelter. As with every lead supplied by a non-paleontologist, Bowen does not give any evidence to suggest this wasn't just a crude burial site. But to investigate further, researchers for China's Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology located the site that was once Bowen's marine base to see if they could excavate the area. Based on Bowen's descriptions and the expertise of a local historian, they managed to estimate the area where they had seen the bones. It's now a parking lot. So, where did the Peking Man fossils go? Are they at the bottom of the ocean? In a warehouse in Japan? Underneath a parking lot in China? Of all the possible answers, none stand out as more likely than the others. The nearly 80 years since their disappearance is so wide a gulf that new evidence is often colored by vague memory or exaggeration. The only one of our theories that we can outright dismiss is the claim that the bones are in Taiwan. While it is possible, the only evidence for it is in the pages of Janice's book, which, as evidence, is suspect at best and useless at worst. The other claim, that it is gathering dust in a Japanese warehouse, is more likely, but is still only a rumor based on Wen Chung Pei's belief that the Japanese soldiers prioritized securing the bones from the university. William Foley's statement that he sent the bones to friends in China is enticing, but the fact that they were not turned up after he gave their information to government officials casts doubt on this possibility. Perhaps at the end of the decades-long investigation, the most likely solution is the simplest, that Japanese soldiers during the war simply misplaced or destroyed the bones. In the chaos that was the Second World War, Few soldiers would know to preserve such a crucial piece of humanity's evolutionary history, especially when it looks like just a handful of really old bones. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. Gone is written by Robert Teamstra and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Yeah.